So, uh, what a week it's been. And there was a great article on the BBC website yesterday. It seems to have disappeared when I had a look for it this morning. And it reflected back um, over the month of March and tried to take in just how much life in the UK has changed in the last few weeks. What a week it has been. Um, one of the few stories on the BBC this week not about coronavirus was the trial of um, Alex Salmond, the former leader of the Scottish National Party. Uh, he was acquitted. Um, I think it would be fair to say that the evidence had seemed stacked against him. 13 charges of assault made by 10 different women over six years. We may not like Alex Salmond very much. We may still think he was guilty. And we will probably all agree, as his lawyer said, that he could have been a better man. But aren't we pleased too, in a world awash with prejudice, inequality and bias, to see justice, to see impartial courts examining hard evidence, hearing reliable testimonies before an unbiased judge. We may not like Alex Salmon very much. We may still think that he was guilty. But aren't we reassured to see that justice has been at work, even for such a man as him? Well, that is far from what we see in our passage this morning that Sarah just read for us. And last Sunday we were with Jesus in the garden. This Sunday we were with Jesus in the courtroom. And I wonder, did you notice, as Sarah read, in amongst all the drama and the details, what the big thing that Luke wants us to notice in this trial is? Look down again at verse 4. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests and the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. Verse 14. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Verse 11. I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Luke wants us to see that Jesus is innocent. He is guiltless. There is no basis for a charge against him. He does not deserve to die. We're going to take each of the five episodes in this trial in turn now, and we're going to see what it shows us of Jesus and his guiltlessness and of the responses of those who witness it. Uh, we'll touch on the first just briefly and spend a bit longer on, on the other four. Um, so stage one, Jesus was guiltless before the guards. Jesus was guiltless before the guards, uh, from chapter 22, just verses 63 to 65. So just as Jesus had prophesied back in chapter 18, verses 32 to 33, um, they will mock him, insult him and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. He had told his disciples. Well, now we see it. Jesus is mocked, insulted, flogged. Imagine him silently bearing the sting of each fresh blow and each fresh insult. The irony, as they demand him to prophesy and fulfil his prophecy. Jesus was guiltless before the guards. Secondly, Jesus was guiltless before the Jewish council. Verses 66 to 71 of chapter 22. He was guiltless before the Jewish council. Verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together. And Jesus was led before them. 
Now, this seems to be the final morning meeting, um, rather than the lengthier evening trial that other gospel writers record for us. And notice first how corporately and unanimously the Jewish leaders are against Jesus in these verses. Verse 67, they. Verse 70, they all. Verse 71, they. We. We. There's no specific mention of Caiaphas or Annas in Luke's account. No ringleaders singled out. No agitators stirring things up. Just unified and united opposition. Not a dissenting voice to be heard. And their line of questioning is wrapped up with Jesus' identity. Verse 67. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. It would be a good question. If it wasn't for the nature of the question and their motives behind it. I wonder whether Luke wants us to cast our minds back to the devil's temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Luke 4 verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. This, um, this interrogative style of approach is never praised by Jesus, is it? He's already demonstrably proved that he's the Messiah, as he told John the Baptist's disciples back in chapter 9. What more do they want him to say? And their motives behind this question? Well, just as the devil had no desire to worship Jesus, the only right response to the question he was asking, nor do the Jewish council. Verse 67. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. There is little point giving straight answers to those who do not really want to know. Jesus has seen it all before with his question about John's baptism in chapter 20. All they want is a confession that they can use to condemn him. You do not have to say anything, but anything you do say may be taken and used in evidence against you. And that's exactly what they get. For Jesus does go on to speak in verse 69, uh, prophesying that he is Daniel 7, son of man, who will come, enter the Father's presence and reign with him. And the council pounce in verse 70. They all asked, are you then the son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. And so corrupt is this trial. So murky are the charges. So non-existent are the witnesses. So guiltless is Jesus that we don't even get a clear verdict against him. The Jewish council have got what they need, enough to go to Pilate, a testimony of his authoritative claims, which they can twist into an allegation of sedition. They're like the parent, just waiting, waiting for you to say the wrong thing. Mention the friend that you weren't supposed to see, the thing you weren't supposed to buy, the place you weren't supposed to go, and then they pounce. They've got you exactly where they want you. You're like the fly caught in the spider's web. The irony? Well, Jesus says it anyway. He isn't fooled by their attempts to trap him. He says it because it's true. He is God's son. He will one day come back to judge those who are accusing him now. Who is really on trial here? One of the commentators wisely asks. And um, we, we know people like this, don't we? The atheist colleague, the humanist friend, the antagonistic family member. Now they're out to trip us up, waiting for us to say the wrong thing so they can go on the attack. Whether it's the historicity of the Bible, the monopolising claims of Christianity over other faiths, 
the far from perfect actions of Christians and the church in the past, or in these times in particular, the question of suffering. And they're on the attack. They're out to trip us up, not to listen to us. Maybe there are some listening this morning. You've been treating Jesus like this. But look how Jesus handled himself in the face of such attacks. He knew their hearts. Their hatred was no surprise to him. He knew what lay behind their questions. And yet he spoke the truth and endured their attacks. He didn't feel the need to justify himself in their eyes. Nor did he hide away where no one could see. What a saviour. So Jesus was guiltless before the guards. He was guiltless before the Jewish council. And number three, Jesus was guiltless before Pilate. Chapter 23 now, verses 1 to 7. Jesus was guiltless before Pilate. Verse 1. The whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate, and they began to accuse him. So now a, a trickier task lies before the Jewish council. That of convincing Pilate that under Roman law, Jesus deserves to die. And they bring three charges against Jesus. Verse 2. We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and he claims to be the Messiah, a king. You'll, um, you'll no doubt notice that the charges have been uh, presented in a different light. For want of a better phrase, uh, to sound political rather than religious. This Jesus, he's a threat to the nation. He's a threat to Rome. How? Well, number one, he's misleading the nation. He's stirring people up. He's inciting rebellion. Number two, he's opposing payment of taxes to Caesar. A palpable lie, we know, from Jesus' handling of that very issue in Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 26. And number three, he claims to be the Messiah. And just to spell out the meaning of this religious term for Pilate, a king. And if he's the ruler, Pilate, if he's the king... What does that mean about Caesar? And Pilate latches on to this third claim and questions Jesus about it in verse 3. So Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And again, Jesus answers enigmatically, you have said so. Jesus replied, there's no point giving straight answers to those who do not really want to know. Well, Pilate's not stupid, is he? His verdict in verse 4 is quick, clear and resounding. I find no basis for a charge against this man. No basis for a charge. Jesus is innocent. He's guiltless. There are no grounds for a guilty charge against him. Jesus does not deserve to die. It's clear-cut. As clear-cut as the supremacy of Cadbury's Daily Milk over Hershey's chocolate. Jesus does not deserve to die. But verse 5, the uh, Jewish leaders speak up again, reiterating their charge of sedition in even stronger terms. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. They're emphasising the spread of his influence now, like a virus sweeping through the nation, Pilate. Are you going to put it in lockdown? What are you going to do? Verse 6, Pilate spots a get-out-of-jail-free card. Jesus is a Galilean. Herod is in charge of Galilee. He can send Jesus to Herod. Lucky Pilate, he's found a way to pass the buck. Best thing to do to ease your conscience as you plan to do the wrong thing? Get someone else in on it too. Ask the friend that you know will approve. 
And again, we see this attitude everywhere around us, don't we? You may well have felt it in the last couple of weeks. I have. You send someone an encouraging verse on WhatsApp, a Christian song, a book, or even a link to a sermon. And they don't even acknowledge the message. Or they reply with thanks for sharing and then move the conversation on. Not my problem, it's Jesus' thing, they say. It's good for you, but it's not for me. You just believe because this is how you were brought up. This is your thing. It's not for me. And they avoid responsibility. They duck the topic. They refuse to consider Jesus' claims on a personal level. That's what Pilate's doing here. Maybe there were some listening this morning. You've been treating Jesus like this. But look how Jesus handled himself in the face of such indifference. And did you notice that Jesus doesn't speak again in this passage after verse 3? He doesn't put his heart into Pilate's hands, basing his security on the ups and downs of what Pilate may or may not think of him. He trusts himself to God and to God's verdict on him. What a saviour. Jesus was guiltless before the guards. He was guiltless before the Jewish council. He was guiltless before Pilate. And fourth, he was guiltless before Herod. 23 verses 8 to 12. He was guiltless before Herod. Now Herod, well, Herod was delighted to see Jesus, verse 8. And not because he wanted to persecute him. This is Herod the Tetrarch, bear in mind. Not, not Herod the Great, who had um, tried to kill Jesus as a baby. No, end of verse 8. He hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. And so, uh, keen to see Jesus in action, Herod, verse 9, plied him with many questions. It was a golden opportunity for Jesus, the chance to speak to someone who's not out to get him like the Jewish council, or coldly indifferent to him like Pilate. But verse 9, Jesus gave him no answer. Why not? Because there's little point giving straight answers to those who do not really want to know. And Herod falls into this category too, does he not? Jesus had already taught his disciples back in chapter 4 what to make of people who are interested only in the miracles. They would get the sign of Jonah. Herod may seem keen, but his interest is not genuine. He's like the coach loads, and they might not come this summer, but the coach loads normally who uh, come to London and they get off at Buckingham Palace. They take loads of photos, they get back on the coach. They get off the bus at Big Ben, they take loads of photos, they get back on again. They get off the bus at London Eye, they take loads of photos and they get back on again. They're not interested in the city of London. What it's really like, its geography, its history, the people who live there. They just want to see some signs and wonders to share with their family and friends on Instagram. Herod may seem keen, but his interest is not genuine, and Jesus knows it. And there's little point giving straight answers to those who do not really want to know. The shallowness of Herod's curiosity is made clear as Herod and his soldiers lose interest in this magician who isn't doing his magic tricks, and dress him up in an elegant robe and ridicule him. Verse 11. And instead of reconciliation between Jesus and those he longs to save, we see reconciliation in verse 12 between Jesus' enemies, between Herod and Pilate, as Herod sends him back. Again, this is a common attitude to Jesus, isn't it? 
in the church as well as outside it. It's the person who's interested in coming to church with you when they're going through a hard time, but lose interest when life picks up again. The person who's in church every week, but they're not there to bow the knee to Jesus. They're there for the friendship, for the space to pause and reflect, for the morality, for the healing they long for, for the smells and bells, the music, the coffee, something to do on a Sunday morning. They're interested in Jesus, but only in what he can do for them. Maybe there are some listening this morning who've been treating Jesus like this. And I think we all do it to some degree. But look how Jesus handled himself in the face of such self-interest. He doesn't rise to the bait. He doesn't take the golden opportunity. If you come to Jesus as a spiritual vending machine, you'll only be disappointed, as we've heard before. Jesus stays silent. What a saviour. Jesus was guiltless before the guards, before the Jewish council, before Pilate, before Herod. And finally, Jesus is guiltless before the crowds. Verses 13 to 25. He was guiltless before the crowds. So Jesus returned to Pilate in verse 13 for the final sentencing. Pilate called them, called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man who, as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither was Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. Jesus is innocent. He's guiltless. There were no grounds for a guilty charge against him. He does not deserve to die. Pilate has followed the due process of the Roman court. There's no basis for a guilty verdict. Herod, despite his mockery, agrees. As a concession, he'll have him beaten anyway. But verse 18, the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man! Release Barabbas to us! The whole crowd shouted. Like the Jewish council before, no ringleader singled out, not a dissenting voice to be heard. Just one unified cried, crowd calling out with one unanimous voice for Jesus to be killed. They would rather have Barabbas, who, verse 19, had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Insurrection! The very crime for which Jesus now stood accused. And Pilate tries to persuade them in verse 20. But to no avail, verse 21, they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! Why, said Pilate, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. One of the most tragic phrases in all of human history. Their shouts prevailed. In the face of the crowd's cries, Pilate gave up on justice, integrity, truth, and he granted their demand. Verse 24. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder. The one they asked for, Luke writes as if he can't quite believe it and surrendered Jesus 
to their will. How painful that contrast is. As Barabbas steps out of his shackles, rubs his eyes in the daylight, cries out for joy and walks away a free man. And Jesus is shoved to the floor and flogged, as Mark reports. He granted their demand and released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. And surely this is where the rubber hits the road for all of us, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Whether or not we've seen ourselves in the mockery of the guards, the vitriol of the Jewish council, the weakness of Pilate or the self-interest of Herod, surely we must all see ourselves in the guiltiness of Barabbas. The list of crimes against us may not read exactly the same as the list against Bar Barabbas, it probably doesn't. But it is no shorter and no less serious. It was our transgressions, our iniquities, that took Jesus to the cross, Isaiah wrote. And we may not have been there laughing in his face, dressing him up in an elegant robe and mocking him, or calling out for him to be crucified. But we might as well have been there, Paul argues in Romans 3. For we've all rejected him in just the same way. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Were God to read his verdict over me? It ought to read, this man is brought to me as one who is rebelling against King Jesus. I've examined him and have found every basis for the charges against him. As you can see, he has done everything to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish and not release him. That's what God ought to say about me. And it's what he ought to say about you. That's not what God's verdict on us, is it? Is, is it? If we're trusting him this morning. For instead, just as this verdict, which should have been read over Barabbas, was instead read over Jesus so that Barabbas could go free, well, so this verdict, which should be read over us, is instead read over Jesus so that we can go free. What a wonderful truth. What a wonderful saviour. I know we've uh, already spent some time praying and confessing in this service. But let's just pause now for maybe a minute or so of just silence. You might want to just pray and confess again. And then I'll close in a prayer and we'll have some songs. So let's pause for about a minute now. Father, we thank you for Jesus. Thank you that though he was guiltless, he went to the cross for us. Amen.